Hallelujah. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. We'll read verses 16 through 19 very quickly. and I won't keep you long today. I know God has already been ministering in this service, ministering to you, and we've, we've waited on Him. I want to be sensitive to that. Hallelujah. Romans 1, 16. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And this next verse looks out of place, but God help me with it. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. I want to preach to you just for a few moments about the good news of God's wrath. It's interesting that he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and then he talks about the wrath of God. And it's puzzled a lot of commentators and a lot of theologians, but I felt like late last evening God began to speak to me that it's, it's not out of place. It's just another way of looking at the gospel and the cross. And when we talk about God's wrath, that frightens everybody, doesn't it? But there's some good news about God's wrath. And he being my helper, I want to share that with you for a few moments. Father, we thank you for what you've already done in this place. Help me, God, just to work in that same vein of ministry. Speak good news and hope through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. You can't have the love of God without the wrath of God. They just, they just go together. And, and I want to help you understand that because God's wrath is his absolute settled disposition against sin, evil, and injustice. That's his settled disposition. His wrath is not capricious, but always moral and ethical reaction to sin. And the idea that God is not angry with sinners is foreign to Scripture. But we're in a culture where that kind of God we don't like. We reject that God. But if you don't understand the wrath of God, you miss the beauty of the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is a personal moral being who is unalterably opposed to evil and takes personal actions against it. Right? Wrath is his punitive righteousness which he ma- how he maintains moral order, which demands justice and retribution for injustice. And I love what Abraham Heschel said. He said, people who reject the ideal of divine wrath as being, are moved by a soft religiosity and would like to think that God is a lovely, tender, familiar, as if faith were only a source of comfort and not a readiness for martyrdom. 
It's only a source of comfort for our troubles. And modern critics of the wrath want in their heart of hearts a fuzzy, warm, cute, cuddly, delicate, and unblemished God. That's what we want. And yes, they declare their desire that that God both care about and be involved in human affairs. Well, if you're going to have a God who cares about us and cares about human affairs and be involved, then when he sees injustice and evil, he has to be moved negatively toward that. Or he doesn't care about us and what hurts us and what wounds us. We cannot have a God who is at once involved in the world and yet not affected by wrong, by, by, uh, wrong behavior and disobedience and injustice. It is impossible to reconcile. I, I think it's possible to reconcile the wrath of God with the love of God. But many Christians reject the idea of a loving God who condemns or punishes wrong behavior. They find it difficult to imagine a gracious God and a loving God who is also wrathful. They would rather think of God as being one who only forgives, who does not require retribution for injustice and abuses committed against persons. But if he cares about us and what happens to us negatively affects him, then he has to be involved. If he cares about us. God is not indifferent to evil. He is always concerned. He is personally affected by what we do to one another in the area of negative things. Backbiting and complaining and putting down, that affects him. He is a God of pathos, right? That is one of the meanings of the anger of God. Is that, that means it's the end of indifference, that God is not indifferent to our suffering. He's not indifferent to what do we do to one another. He understands that and it moves him. Think about that. If God was apathetic, that would take us off the hook, right? About our own sin and what we've done to others. But it would also mean that God doesn't care. That God doesn't care about what hurts us and wounds us. He doesn't care about those. That would mean he's indifferent and removed. And that second hopelessness would be greater than the first. Since justice is his nature, love that would disregard the evil deeds of man would contradict his nature. Because of his concern for us, his justice it tempered with mercy. Divine anger is not the antithesis of love, but it is the counterpart of love. It is a help to justice as demanded by true love, right? I think Martin Luther King said it best. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive. And that love without power is sentimental and anemic. I don't want a sentimental and anemic God. I want a God that cares deeply about what affects me. And it, I don't want just a sentimental God and a, a, like a, a grandfatherly God. I want someone who, who's involved, who is moved by what moves me. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. 
Moreover, God's wrath is always related to the doctrine of salvation. And that's why I brought this text. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? It's the power of God unto salvation. And then he says, the wrath of God has been revealed against all unrighteousness. Where was it revealed? At the cross. That's where it was revealed. That a man, a God-man came and took the wrath of God for you and I. He absorbed the wrath of God against sin so that you and I do not have to experience it. But let me say this. If you do not accept the person who's taken the wrath of God in your stead, then you have to face it on your own. You have to face the full weight of his anger against injustice and evil and sin that is opposed to his holiness. The good news about the wrath of God is that it's been satisfied in Jesus Christ. That there he showed how he felt about sin. And he took all of his wrath out on one man who stood in your place. And there is no reason that you should ever have to be afraid of the condemnation and wrath of God. If you have repented of your sins and been baptized in his name and received the spirit. That's the good news about God's wrath. But when you read about Jesus coming back. Right now, there is mercy and there is grace that tempers. But when Jesus comes back, there's no room for any of that. The time for that has diminished and God's wrath will be poured out on the earth against sin and evil and injustice. If there is no wrath, then there is no salvation. If God does not act against sinners, there is no danger from which sinners need to be saved. And that means there's no amazing grace. See, our problem is we think we're saved to something. You're saved from something. You're saved from the wrath of God. And there's nobody who can stand against that. But thanks be to God, he made a way that you and I do not have to endure that. In Jesus Christ. Understand, that's how God feels about sin. God showed how he felt about sin. He doesn't wave his hand. He doesn't go, oh, no big deal. You know, it's because of the way you were raised. Or it was because, you know, that person tempted you. No, no, no. He shows how he feels about it at Calvary. That's how serious he is about sin. He never makes excuse for it. He says, somebody had to pay the penalty. Somebody had to pay the wages that we earned. And Jesus Christ was willing to do it. Lay down his life and absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. The good news of the gospel is that sinners who justly deserve the wrath of God, you and I, may be delivered from it, right? The wrath of God is satisfied by the sinless death of Jesus Christ. That's how it's satisfied. That's the good news. But I'm here to tell you that if we don't accept that good news, if we don't accept the substitute on our behalf, then we have to face that in our own goodness. And it's not going to be good enough. We need to shelter ourselves beneath what Jesus has done for us. Let me take a break from wrath and I'll come back to it because there's a lot of people who don't understand this in the modern church. It's just God is a God of love. Well, how does he feel when 
children are molested or abused? Is he just indifferent to that? Does he just love the sinner? We need to, we need to think a little bit. And, and, and in our effort to get rid of the wrath of God, what we do is we make uh, the cross an overreaction to sin. We start to destroy other things that are connected to that. But Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of that. Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. John Chrysostom says he was about to preach of one who passed for the son of a carpenter, brought up in Judea, in the backwoods, the house of a poor woman, and who died like a criminal in the company of robbers. Next to the power of imperial Rome, the gospel is a shameful story of a king crucified in weakness and deserted by his followers who are ashamed to say they knew him. Think about that. Here he is talking to a church that's at the epicenter of the world's power. And he said, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I know it may look weird to you or strange to you and all the pomp and ceremony of Rome, but I'm not ashamed. Next to the power of imperial Rome, the gospel is a shameful story of a king crucified in weakness and deserted by his followers. But Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God unto salvation. It may not come in the power that you think, but it is powerful to change your life. And remove your sin. Amid the opulence of Rome, what does Paul have to offer? Only Jesus, a misfit Judean prophet who suffered a shameful public torture and execution at the hands of the Romans. An execution so shameful that it was not allowed for Roman citizens. That's what Paul comes to the center of the world with. That's his message. Crucifixions in publics sometimes in mass along major highways, were Rome's brutal billboards advertising Roman right to rule all peoples and Roman justice on any who would threaten that right. This is what happens when you come against us. And Paul takes that picture of a crucified Christ and says it's the power of God unto salvation. What looked like failure, what looked like loss is the power of God. Paul knows that beneath the disguise of humiliation, God vindicates Jesus through the resurrection. He understands that now what appeared to be defeat is the power of salvation to those who believe. Salvation means being saved from God's wrath. Don't, you need to understand that. The reason we're not excited about salvation is because we only tell people what they're saved to. We don't tell them what they're saved from. That's why it's amazing grace. Because number one, you don't deserve it. And what you deserve is what Jesus got on the cross. That's what we all deserve. But somebody took our place. That's what's supposed to motivate our worship. That's what's supposed to move us when we come into his house. Is that I know what I deserve. And the amazing thing is, I didn't get what I deserve. I got blessing and favor. And I got to bypass the wrath of God. 
Watch Paul. Paul says this very clearly in Romans 4, 5. Much more surely then, now that we've been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. Paul always goes back. You were in danger. You were in mortal danger. And someone took your place. Someone stood in your place and absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf. That's the good news. But that's what you're saved from. We're always trying to tell people, you know, it just improves the right of life. <laughs> you know? It's like, it's like taking somebody on a plane and giving them a, giving them a parachute and saying, this is going to improve the ride. That's how we do salvation today. Right? They put on the parachute. They're sitting like this. There's like, no, this makes the ride more uncomfortable. Right? Salvation is not supposed to make the ride better. Right? Salvation is if the plane goes down, you have something to have put your faith in. When the world goes haywire, you've got something to put your faith in. When, when, when the mark of the beast happens and all these end time events, you've got something to put your faith in. It's something to be saved from before it's ever something to be saved to. And until you get that down in you, you always miss it. You always go, well, I'm not as blessed as they are. And that promise didn't come to pass. You got to go back to where you started. What you were saved from. The rightful, just wrath of God. According to 1 Corinthians 1.18, those who are in love with the usual standards of glory are perishing. They don't get it, whether it's Jews or Greeks, but those captivated by the inglorious message of the crucified one who believe it and are not ashamed of it are being saved. Saved means saved from danger. We got to get that back into our vocabulary. Saved from danger, saved from eternal torment, saved from something everybody wants to avoid. That's what makes it amazing grace, is we're saved from something to something we don't deserve. They are saved, that is, from the systems and standards of self-evident glory that the shame the weak and the lowly and the poor and blind the eyes of the glorious to the way of God in accomplishing his inglorious work of justice in the world. The good news powerfully bursts into, breaks open and lays bare the systems of ungodliness and injustice that hold humans bondage and wreak havoc on history. I love this statement. Love inevitably lapses into permissiveness unless it's balanced by holiness. It always does. So that's okay, honey. That's all right, baby. That is not the God you're in a relationship with. It wasn't okay. It was not okay. He had to take it out on someone to remain to be holy and just. If he says it's wrong and there's a consequence, somebody had to pay that consequence. And thanks be to God, it's not you. Thanks be to God, it's not me. That's why I lift my hands is because someone stood in my place and now I don't have to fear that or be under the condemnation and the guilt that that's coming on me. (laughs) 
It's got to be balanced by, love has to be balanced by holiness. God's purity demands that he take an uncompromising stance on sin. That he pronounces the truth to people about their immorality. If we affirm God's love without also affirming God's holiness, then God's love can quickly degenerate into permissiveness and indulgence. Tim Keller says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness, and it gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet radical, unconditional commitment to us to save us and change us. That's powerful. He tells us, you're a sinner, you're lost, but guess what? Here's the good news. I took your punishment on your behalf and I absorbed the wrath that you deserve and you're free of that. Think, think about it. Think about that for a moment. God's saving love in Christ is marked by both radical truthfulness and yet a commitment to us. God who is love is also necessarily a God of justice. And justice, which means anything, always includes a retributive element. Love without justice can be sentimental, naive, and wishy-washy. Many today picture a holy God as a doting grandfather or a Santa God. We make deals and we negotiate with him. We expect gifts and lots of them from our Santa God. Such a God gives indiscriminately and abundantly for no other reason than being God and with no other condition than our very existence and wanting us to be happy. Faced with human wrongdoing, such a God becomes a doting grandparent who for the most part sees and hears no evil. Our evolved civilization says affirmation, not condemnation, is the cure for misbehavior. A God, who's condemned, a God who condemned our deeds would be a bad God or at least a psychologically unsophisticated God. An acceptable God is the one who leaves our wrongdoing alone and takes care of our well-being. That's what we want. A God who is the one who gives us all we need and affirms us all our deeds. Such a God is basically a divine version of a doting grandparent. And that's what many of us have, right? James Cone said this, removing wrath to make God more palatable ultimately weakens the central biblical truth about God's liberation of the oppressed from oppressors. A God without wrath does not plan to do much liberating. I hear this all the time, and it's funny for me. I hear this. I hear people say, I believe in a God of love. I could never follow a God who would send people to hell. Since sin is natural to humans, we think justice and hell are an overreaction. All right? From the perspective of a holy God, sin is rebellion against his benevolent and wise rule. Every command is designed to result in human flourishing. None of the restrictive thou shall nots are arbitrary. Human beings thrive and experience significance when we trust God's wise counsel in his word. Here's what I find. When people object to God's wrath or to hell, they are judging God's response to sin as too harsh. 
That's what we have in America today. We are judging God. We are not asking God to judge us and to be honest with us and tell us the truth. But God, we are judging you. It's an overreaction. You didn't have to be that harsh about sin. I love this because when I hear people, you know what I know? They say, well, if I was in charge of running the world, they would be far more merciful to the sinner. They believe they are more loving than a God that robed himself in flesh and died in humanity's place so that no one would ever have to experience that wrath. Yet were anyone to ask those who judge God as cruel what they have risked saving their neighbor, they would instantly realize their hypocrisy. See, when modern people feel uncomfortable with God's justice, it proves that our modern culture has no love for innocent victims. That's, we don't have any love for it. We don't care. Right? Think about it. Think of Rwanda. In the last decade of the past century, the late 90s, 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath? But instead affirming the perpetrators, basic goodness, wasn't God fiercely angry with them? See, without a God of justice, people like Hitler and Stalin will never be held accountable. Without a God of justice that eschatologically at the end time will hold everybody accountable, none of those, those people get off the hook. And so you guys who are so gracious and kind don't care about innocent victims. That's what our modern culture, we don't care about the genocidal maniacs. We don't care if they get off the hook. We don't care that somebody rights all the wrongs and takes care of people who never repented for what they did to others. For the child molesters and the sex traffickers, we're okay with them getting off the hook as long as we get off. See, their victims who were mercilessly slaughtered will never find justice in our common thought of a loving God. Surely most rational thinkers believe there are some evil people whose actions are heinous that they deserve punishment. But unfortunately, in our relativistic culture, no one is courageous enough to draw categories of who may be deserving of that justice. Any lines will ultimately encompass us all. That's why justice should be left in the hands of a loving God. That's why he's the one who's earned the right to bring justice. Amen. It's not in my hands. That's why he says, don't give revenge for revenge. Don't look. Don't repay evil for evil. Leave it in my hands. I know how to handle it. I'll give them plenty of time to repent. I'll work on them. I'll convict them. I'll try to draw them to a place of repentance and accept what I've done on their behalf. That's what I'll try to do. Let me handle it. Do you understand that the whole concept of nonviolence is rooted in the fact that, that Martin Luther King and those who follow him believed that God would handle it in the end? That's the only way you can let people turn on a fire hose on you and sick dogs on you and jail you. Because you believed in the eschatological justice of God. 
But you know what? We don't believe in that anymore. We're going to take it in our hands. We're going to take it in our hands and we're going to get it now. And when it gets in our human hands, that's where violence starts. That's where injustice, one man's justice is another man's injustice. And that's where we are in our culture. We've lost faith that God is going to come and set it right. We as the church have to get back to that place. That when people hurt me, that I can forgive knowing that, hey, I hope the best for them and I want them to get right. But if they don't, God will take care of that in his mercy and his justice. And he'll handle it right. But in my hands, I'll mess it up and I'll create a cycle of violence. We have to leave it in his hands. That's why the civil rights movement was so powerful because it shamed them. Shamed them publicly. It took their hidden hatred and made it public. And it shamed them. See, we've we've lost confidence in that. You ain't going to talk to me like that. We've lost confidence in that. It doesn't undergird our culture anymore. That's why we're at one another's throat. That's why we're canceling one another. Come on, because we've lost faith that one day God's going to set all the wrongs right. He's going to set them all down, those that didn't repent, those that kept hurting and wounding people. He's going to take care of it. It's best left in his hands. The idea that God, and this is the one that gets me, the idea that God casts people into hell against their will is a character. It's not the way it happens. God honors our choice. If we deem God unworthy of worship and service in this life, He allows us to be free from Him eternally. Only a tyrant would make us spend eternity with someone we don't want to spend an hour a week with. Now that's a tyrant. That you got to be around me forever and around the throne. You got to praise me. You didn't want to spend an hour a week, but you got to come to heaven with me. That's a tyrant. He honors our choice. He allows us to be free from him eternally. Since human beings have decided that attending worship is not worth their time, only a tyrant would require they spend eternity in his presence. C.S. Lewis says, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. Watch this. All God does in the end with people is to give them what they most want, including freedom from himself. What could be fairer than that? What could be fairer? Lewis writes, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Watch this. All that are in hell chose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. Everybody's going to have an opportunity to hear the good news about God's wrath and know that he took my punishment and to stand underneath what he's done for me. Or I can say, you know, I'm not that bad. I think I'll stand in front of a holy God on my own terms. My job is to get you to put your faith in what's already been done on your behalf. (sighs) 
That's my job today is to help you put your faith in what's already been done on your behalf. Because when I read about Jesus coming back on that white horse and he has a name and a vesture dipped in blood, he's not, right now, today, his hands are extended. His, his wounded hands are extended. Right now, today, he's reaching to us. But we live in a culture who wants to make God in our image. Who doesn't want a just God. But I'm here to tell you, he's going to straighten it all out. Every person who, who doesn't repent, God is going to sit down. Every person who rose to the highest heights, he's going to sit down. Those who lied their way, he's going to expose He's going to do it. In his righteousness and his goodness, he's going to do it. That's why he says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I'll take care of it. That's why you forgive him. That's why you love him. That's why you continue to be merciful because I'll take care of it. I got your back. Hopefully, your graciousness will move them to repentance. We live in a world. God help me. We live in a world that thinks they're more merciful than God. We live in a culture. Well, I wouldn't do that. I would, I would never send anybody to hell. I've always asked. Somebody told me that. I said, what would you like him to do with the unrepentant sinners? What do you like to do with Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and any other genocidal maniac? You want to just move them into heaven unrepentant next to you? How long do you think you last? See, there's something in all of us that wants justice. How many of you have ever said, that's not fair? Huh? That's the first thing that comes out of a kid's bed. That's not fair. And a lot of theologians think that's an anthropomorphism. No, we get it from God because his nature and we're made in his image. There's something about us that wants fairness. But the only person that can set it completely fair is him when he comes again. I'm putting my faith in that. I'm not going to let the enemy divide me against one another. I know that he'll handle it when he gets here. Amen? And I'm gonna, in the, until then, I'm going to rejoice in the fact that there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. That the punishment has already been given to him, so I don't have to fear it, praise God. But there are a lot of people in this world that we need to reach. You can stand with me. You can stand. There's a lot of people we need to reach. There's a lot of people we need to reach. Who the wrath of God is a real danger. It's coming. I have family and I have friends that I don't want them to experience that. I don't want them to be lost. Father, 
I just pray today, God, you would show us the beauty of the cross, that your wrath was poured out on Jesus. You showed me and how you felt about sin. But in your gracious love, you absorbed it so that we don't have to experience it. I want to thank you, Lord, for taking my place. That was my wrath. Those were my sins. Those were my actions. I never forget, I, I used to work or go to a place called Odyssey Harbor in Keene. And it's a tough little place to minister because a lot of the kids there have been sexually abused. And I remember one of the kids asked me one time, and he said, why didn't God stop my parent? I was silent for a long time. I didn't want to be unkind to the young man because I knew he was struggling. But just in a moment of, I don't know, maybe the Spirit helped me. I said, can I ask you something? I said, have you ever hurt anybody? He said, yes, I have. I said, did God stop you? See, you don't have to understand something about this free will thing. When it comes to people to people, if God steps in and stops one, he's got to stop all. It's different if it's a car spinning out of control, okay? It's different if it's a fire that nobody started. But when a person makes a choice against you, if God steps in and stops that choice, he's got to stop it all. And there's no free will. What he tells us is, you've got to have faith that one day I'm going to set it all right. I'm going to handle it all. I'm going to set them all down, the ones that are prideful, the ones that are boastful, the backbiters, the haters, the unjust, the evil, the murderer. I'm going to handle it all. In the meantime, you love them. You extend mercy to them. Because I've been merciful to you and you got something you didn't deserve. So give them what they don't deserve. Give them what they don't deserve. Father, I just pray today that you'd help us, God, to see your, the beauty of the cross and not be ashamed of it, God. To see the power of that cross released in our lives Lord Jesus you became our substitute and took our place help me to show others that there's something to be saved from not just something to be saved to